0: Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen, and I'm really looking forward to today's episode. Generally on the podcast, we explore topics that are pretty fundamental to mental health and skillful behavior, both in ourselves and out in the world. Topics like how we can build up fundamental strengths or relate to challenging people, or maybe even heal from painful experiences that took place earlier in our lives. These are big, important topics, and there's a lot to say on them. But today we're going to wander maybe a bit further out into the deep end of the pool and engage a topic that I know that Rick finds particularly interesting, self-transcendent or peak experiences, which the famous psychologist Abraham Maslow defined as moments of highest happiness and fulfillment. To help us do that, we're joined by a true expert on the subject, David Yadin. But before we get to David, I wanted to give you a quick reminder about our new Patreon account. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com backslash beingwellpodcast, where for less than the cost of about a cup of coffee a month, you can support the show. You'll also get access to our private Patreon feed, additional background information on various episodes, the Just One Thing episodes, and access to special bonuses like monthly Q&A episodes where we answer questions from our patrons. Again, that's patreon.com slash being well podcast, and I've included a link to it in the description of today's episode. So now on to David. David is a research fellow and PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania who studies the varieties of spiritual and self transcendent experiences from the perspectives of psychology and cognitive neuroscience. Specifically, he's interested in understanding how these experiences can result in long-term changes to well-being, and how they alter the fundamental faculties of consciousness. His work has been covered by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, New York Magazine, and NPR. His research has been published in a variety of journals, and he was the lead author of The Varieties of Self-Transcendent Experience, an article will be linking in the show notes, And it really does a fantastic job of exploring and explaining some of the biology and psychology that might underpin the experiences we'll be talking about today. So, David, all of that said, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing?
1: It's wonderful to be here. And thank you for that fantastic introduction. I appreciate it.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. And um, honestly, it's great to have you here today. And I'm so looking forward to this on both a kind of personal and professional level. I think that when the topics get sort of potentially airy or a little vague, like what do we really mean by a self-transcendent experience, I offered one definition from Maslow right at the start, but how would you define that term?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And a lot of my entire research interest is taking these very far out kinds of experiences and grounding them in what we know from contemporary psychology and neuroscience And making them, making these ineffable experiences effable, so to speak. Mm, mm -hmm. So, for self transcendent experiences, what we're really after with this term is isolating two key dimensions that occur in lots of different experiences. You mentioned Maslow and his peak experiences. William James, who preceded Maslow, called them mystical experiences. There are a lot of terms because these experiences range from the daily to the transformative. But what I would say is self-transcendent experiences involve a decrease in self-salience and an increase in feelings of connectedness. So you're focused less on yourself and you're feeling deep, profound feelings of connection to other people and also the world as a whole.
0: So, David, one of the things that I really appreciate about your work is that there is the allusion to these extremely profound experiences that people might have of various kinds, but those experiences, those mystical experiences, those profound spiritual experiences, you know, whatever you want to call them, are kind of placed alongside these very sort of normal everyday experiences, things like mindfulness, experiences of flow, and so on, that people can just kind of have on a day-to-day basis. So what are some of the kind of different kinds of self-transcendent experiences that a person might have, and what are some of the common features of them?
1: So we talk about these experiences as, as these dramatic, intense moments, and I'm really interested in those kinds of experiences to help people understand that they occur and that they're not alone in having these experiences, the kind of thing that I wanted for myself after I had my experience in order to understand it. But when I was connecting these experiences to, you know, grounding them in contemporary psychology, what I was running into were these constructs that are very common, uh, and yet they're described as having this element of connectedness and self-loss. And so, when you look at the authors of these constructs describing them uh, in writing, you know, we, you know, I was looking for quotes, and then also in the the scales, the psychometric scales meant to measure these constructs, there's also items that mention self-loss or connectedness. And so, it was really interesting to see things like flow. Flow is wh- when you're deeply absorbed in a challenging and interesting task. Mindfulness, you know, during mindfulness meditation, I'm sure you talk a lot about that. Self-transcendent positive emotions like love. And then awe, you know, when you think about truly stunning scenery or a mind-blowing TED Talk even, or an amazing piece of art, you know, that, that mental state gives a taste, I think, for these more intense self-transcendent experiences, which have been called peak or mystical. So there's a continuum of intensity on which these experiences lie. And sometimes we call that the unitary continuum and all of these different types of experiences, the varieties of self-transcendent experience.
2: One way of thinking about this for myself is that we live our lives normally as if we're behind a wall and the world broadly is on the other side of the wall other people, the cars driving past, the trees, the air, the sky. Now we can see pictures of other galaxies, hundreds of millions of light years away. And then sometimes the wall seems to come falling down. And instead of it being a psychotically negative pathological experience of depersonalization, which would be a terrible thing to have, the the sense is that the world floods through us, as it were maybe with some sort of intuition about what could be potentially beyond ordinary reality. That's kind of how I myself think about these sort of experiences in a simple way. People who've had these profound experiences, and research roughly shows that about one in three people, as you point out, has had one of these major league experiences around the world. And in self-disclosure, I'll say, I would not describe myself as someone who has had the full Megillah. The whole enchilada of these classic experiences on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm deeply interested in what happens when that apparent wall between oneself and the world, broadly defined, becomes increasingly porous in everyday life. Not so much one of these life changing, dramatic moments where it just comes crashing down, but with practice, how can we gradually cultivate a more permeable sense of self and world? while still, you know, recognizing the difference between the car we're driving and the big truck next to us.
1: Yeah, well, that beautifully captured a number of the most important components of this topic. I think I'll begin with where you began, which is that sometimes these experiences can be uh, associated with psychopathology. And that's a really important thing to mention, I think, And and you hit the nail on the head, in that these experiences... Are sometimes related to but also sometimes conflated with dissociative experience where things feel very unreal and uh, that wall between oneself and the world can seem fuzzy in some ways uh, but usually dissociative experiences are ultimately more alienating than connecting and you know, I mentioned that sometimes we conflate these experiences with psychopathology, and that's certainly been true in the field of psychology since Freud, really. Uh, Freud talked about oceanic feelings of oneness, and he said, I've never had one of these experiences, and they feel, quote, strange to me, or they seem strange. And there there's no way that this kind of experience can fit within a healthy psychology. And so he, he from his armchair, without any data whatsoever, he said, I've not had one of these experiences. They seem strange. Therefore, they must be associated with psych- psychopathology. And he also offered an explanation. He said, these are repressed memories of being in the womb coming to awareness. Most contemporary psychologists think this is pretty silly. And yet the the pathologizing influence of this Freudian perspective has persisted to a remarkable extent. And so one of the aims was to show that actually these experiences are surprisingly prevalent. As you mentioned, about one third of a given population will say, yes, I have felt it one with all things. So a substantial minority of your listeners will have had one of these experiences (laughs) And they oh.
2: Neither of whom are being spoken to right now, neither <laughs> yeah, Forrest right. nor I. So <laughs> that means there must be someone else out there. How about you? Have you had one of these experiences? I, I have had one
1: of these experiences. And ah. that that's what brought me into this topic.
2: Would you be willing to talk about it? I mean, sometimes people, I think correctly, don't want to talk about them, uh, because there's a way they you know, become strangled by language and also that uh, they're very sacred, very precious. I've had certain particular experiences, not of this sort, that I rarely, rarely talk about and which are still very meaningful to me. So I don't want to put you under any pressure, but I wondered if you would be willing to share. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm
1: comfortable sharing my experience that first brought me into this field at all. I had no idea... About these experiences uh, beforehand, you know they say research is me search. <laughs> <laughs> so I I had an experience in college lying in my dorm room bed. This was spontaneous. It really felt as if it came out of nowhere. I was lying in my dorm room bed, and I I felt what I thought was heartburn, and it began in my chest and this feeling moved throughout my entire body and at some point i thought or or a voice in my mind said this is love at which point i went out of my body or into my mind and saw 360 degree intricate fabric surrounding me and stretching out to eternity that I felt entirely part of and and one with. And that feeling that I was experiencing as love just reached the absolute boiling point. And after what was probably a minute or two, but felt like a couple of days, I opened my eyes and my body was laughing and crying at the same time. Very unusual. And... Yeah. Almost immediately, I felt this wave of warmth. I, the, 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 the stereotypical, I wanted to call my friends and family and tell them I love them. And I just, life seemed new and bursting with possibilities. And most of all, I was wondering what the hell just happened to me? <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> and that has, that question has really stayed with me and has driven. My research and who I've studied with over the years. And so it it brought me through reading uh, about comparative religion, to philosophy, uh, to neuroscience, and eventually to psychology. And I'm trained as an experimental psychologist.
2: Can you speak, David, about the impact of that experience on you in Mm -hmm. lasting ways?
1: So it very viscerally changed me for many months i would say and i i learned what meditation was i started practicing meditation you know i i started taking time to take walks every day there there were certain practices that just seemed obvious to me and they felt mm. deeply connected to that experience in some way you know and it, and this is at the heart of what I study, it's very hard to know how long the experience really did impact me, because I can't run a study in an alternate universe where I didn't have the experience. But anecdotally, it feels like it made a, a very important impact in my life for at least months, if, if not years, and, and and maybe even till today.
2: Yeah, one of the figures in your paper asks people who've had experiences like this to list their impact. And uh, the most common category is that these are one of the top five life experiences the person has ever had, period, hands down.
1: Yeah, so this this comes out of research at Johns Hopkins that they're doing with psilocybin, which is a psychedelic substance which seems to reliably induce these experiences in healthy volunteers. And the experiences that these people are having seem very similar to spontaneous experiences like mine. And it's just remarkable. I see this in my data as well, and in people just reporting these experiences regardless of the trigger, that they're rated in the top five most meaningful moments of someone's entire life, which I just find remarkable. I mean, all of this is happening behind the eyes. You know, there's no outward, obvious stimuli occurring, you know, no big life event. And and yet these are deeply, profoundly meaningful experiences and absolutely fascinating.
0: To kind of get into it on a personal level, I think that people who have been listening to this podcast for any length of time would probably start to get a sense of what is true, which that I'm a relatively skeptical, kind of logic-driven person who very much on a personal level kind of operates within the material frame. I describe myself as an agnostic with a big bow toward what we don't know. But hey, I don't know it. So it's tough for me to relate to it. And part of what I really liked about um, your work in general is the way in which these, quote unquote, big experiences, the spiritual experiences and otherwise, are grounded very much inside of that more everyday material frame. So maybe staying in that framework, you know, not knowing what we don't know, what are some of the things that are going on inside of the brain or inside of the body when somebody is having one of these experiences?
1: Yeah. So let me just address your, your first point first, because I share, I think, a lot of your inclinations. And there's, well, first of all, there's a, there's a philosopher named Edmund Husserl, who talked about bracketing. And what bracketing does is it allows you to analyze a particular subjective experience without any kind of metaphysical assumptions. And so it's a very agnostic kind of approach. And we definitely take that approach when we analyze these experiences in research. We don't talk about religious or spiritual realities that some people talk about during these experiences. And also, there are a number of atheists who have had these kinds of experiences. Uh, Bertrand Russell was a a very well-known atheist philosopher. He describes a mystical experience, and he says, while some of the aspects that he experienced he later considered delusions, the experience nonetheless was extremely psychologically valuable to him. And there are a number of other atheists who have had experiences like this, and they just interpret them entirely within their worldview. So I would say that these experiences are equal opportunity in terms of worldview. Hmm. People of all belief Mm -hmm. and non-belief systems can and do have them. And so in, in terms, though, of what's going on in the body and the brain, this is definitely something that we're still learning. And so most of what I'll say is more of a tantalizing lead. But there's a couple of streams of research, one by a former advisor of mine, Andrew Newberg, who put Tibetan meditators and nuns into a scanner. And these are veteran contemplatives, people who have practiced 10,000 hours or more. And they put themselves into a state of unity and he uh, he did neuroimaging. On their brains, and he found that a particular region in the parietal lobe, uh, and this region is associated with spatial awareness, so sort of mapping your body in space, mapping where your skin ends and everything else begins, basically, so these self-other boundaries. This was very broad and, and vague, a large region of the parietal lobe. Also, there's a long tradition of people with temporal lobe epilepsy having these experiences, people like Dostoevsky, for example. And so there was some sense that maybe the temporal, this, this temporal parietal junction, had something to do uh, with triggering these experiences. In more recent years, there's been some really great research using lesion studies. So a, a number of people had to get cancerous tumors removed from different areas of their brains, and these people took uh, an inventory before and after having to do with self-transcendence, and it was only when this inferior parietal region uh, was disturbed, so right in that temporal parietal junction did people report having more self-transcendent experiences afterwards. So we're we're narrowing in more and more on particular regions that seem at least related in some way and we hope to get more specific. Now of course it's not just that this one particular spot does everything in 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 the experience. There are very complex uh, brain and body networks involved. But there are some some tantalizing clues about regions of the brain that represent the body in space.
2: So, whatever the underlying causes and conditions are inside ordinary reality, inside the natural frame, as it were, how can people make use of these experiences? How do they make use of them? Thinking of the third or so who've had the full package, let's say, and then thinking of people like myself um, who've had very, very powerful intimations of the essence of the experience, the the release of self into the full oneness with reality, how do those experiences help people? And how can people make use of them and digest them over time?
1: So I, I used to say that there is no way to make use of these experiences. <laughs> and that, that my, my research was focused just purely on understanding them and, and people who have had these experiences Uh, I I no longer think that that's true. And actually, I was reading your your neurodharma book and your Mm -hmm. HEAL framework, I think, is is really interesting. And I mean that quite seriously. I just haven't thought much about how to induce these experiences or leverage them. And I I don't encourage people generally to go seek them out. Mm. I'm so focused on just trying to understand them, and, and that's been the heart of my work. And so I don't, I don't know if you're interested in introducing that framework in this context, but I'm, I'm interested to think about how it might relate.
2: First, I would like to point out that you made excellent use of the experience you had in college because it altered your behaviors in a variety of ways, which is distinct from the direct psychological impact of it. And yet, by changing your behaviors, by being moved toward meditation, I suspect for weeks, if not months, afterward, you were nicer to your That's friends right. and family, and more loving. And as Barbara Fredrickson would talk about it, you know, the researcher on positive emotion, you, you you caught some upward spirals, you caught some good waves that were seeded, were catalyzed by that by that initial breakthrough. So clearly, you made use of it in those ways, and I think people do clearly, or can make use of these experiences through uh, changing their behaviors, which then engender new beneficial experiences. That's certainly one way. I think there's another way which goes to the ball you tossed my way, the hot potato here, uh, speaking about how can we uh, deliberately internalize beneficial experiences uh, in ways that have lasting gains, presumably based on some kind of underlying durable change in the nervous system, right? So the HEAL acronym, Have, Enrich, Absorb, and Link, uh, is a framework I've created for the deliberate internalization of beneficial experiences. And I've known a number of people who've had experiences like this, with or without psychedelics, mainly without, and uh, they deliberately tried to help themselves remember what they knew in the middle of the peak of the experience, and not... Reducing what they knew then into some kind of formula phrase, uh, and not trying to hold on to it as an idea, but more just internalizing it, embodying it increasingly, and trying to help themselves not forget. I think that's one of the most important things, actually, in the process of growth in life. We have these these moments where we realize something, including in a very nonverbal way. We we feel a new way of being. Let's say with other people in which perhaps we can feel both grounded and strong as well as open-hearted and caring we find ourselves suddenly drawn into a new way of being for one reason or another and then after that we try to help ourselves remember it and come home to it and to help it become the new normal progressively over time so i think that's definitely a, a thing that people can do and do do and As part of it, you know, certainly in the Buddhist contemplative tradition and in the other traditions, uh, there's this notion of integration afterward. Uh, There's a saying, you may know it, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, (laughs) Right? sudden awakening. And that's an upward spiral. And so over time, uh, what we try to help ourselves do is, as Samuel Bonder puts it, wake down, not just wake up. In other words, we have a breakthrough in meditation or... Uh, talking with a friend or standing under the stars one night on the edge of the sea. And then afterward, we try to help it sink in and make a difference in our lives. And that's very much under our our own power. And by contrast, just to finish here, as you know better than I, there are many examples of people who've had these kinds of experiences that they never made anything of. They would say, yeah, I had this thing that happened to me when I was in my 20s or at some point, and it was weird. It was interesting. It was wonderful and shrug. It never made any difference in my life So I think we have an opportunity not to do that.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean that's It's beautifully said there's a lot there to unpack and I think that Research from myself and others will be focusing on just this question Okay, you've had this experience now. How can you integrate it? and to your life in a, in a way that continues to pay dividends. But going back to Forrest's question, there, there are more daily iterations of self-transcendent experience that we can choose to cultivate, and making space for awe or mindfulness or flow, uh, I think, is extraordinarily important. For our well-being and for just the value that we place on our time, uh, you know, just before our conversation, I went for a, lo- a walk along the river, and it's it's a you know it's the Schuylkill here in Philadelphia, right by Penn. It's it's not an extraordinary river, but it, the sun was setting and, <laughs> and, it, and, you know, over the highway and there was a real beauty to it. And it, it there was a flavor of of awe there. And it mm. does seem to put things into perspective, enlargens our view it. I think that the metaphor of the wall coming down a little bit between oneself and the world that Rick raised is very apt. And I think just planning for these micro moments through the day can be profound.
0: Uh, David, you mentioned something a second ago there that completely caught my interest. Then we kind of, we wandered in other directions. But you said that you generally don't recommend that people seek these experiences out. That seems... If anything, wildly divergent from what most spiritual practitioners would suggest. So, uh, why do you feel that way?
1: Well, you know, I'm speaking as a researcher.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: And and not a clinician, and and not a a, a spiritual teacher.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And as a researcher, I just don't think we know enough yet mm. to to recommend seeking them out. And. You know, people may seek them out in any number of of different ways, some of which can be probably quite healthy and transformative, and some of which can be unsettling or can be done in a way that might be unhealthy or or even dangerous.-
0: mm-hmm.
1: So I think that we're dealing with very, very potent psychological experiences yeah really beyond the scope of a lot of what we deal with in psychology which are you know thoughts or or emotions or exercises these are these are really poignant experiences and i think it's important to approach them with respect and and with care and and so as a researcher and i'm looking forward to learning more about healthy ways that people can engage with these experiences and, and on the other hand, what the contraindications are.
0: No, I think that's a great piece of advice and kind of offering of a word of caution in a territory where, man, at least in my personal experience operating in a lot of environments uh, with people with very strong faith, spiritual belief, underlying practice, whatever it might be, there's often kind of the experience where the further out into the end of the pool, however we we want to call it, of the stream of consciousness you've been, that's like the proxy for how evolved you are as a person, basically. Whoever's had the wildest, deepest, whatever it is set of experiences, that's kind of a mark of status in a certain extent. And I think there's a natural tendency for that to drive people to want that. And I think that it's kind of nice to hear a viewpoint of, hey, sure, these things can be profoundly healthy and profoundly wonderful, but also we're we're playing with kind of very, very powerful forces, for lack of a better way of putting it. And it's not always totally clear that these things are either achieved beneficially or beneficial in and of themselves, as you were referring to earlier around kind of the negative versions of some of these experiences. So um, I certainly appreciate it. That said, among the people who've been having these experiences or who have had these experiences, Are there some common traits? Like, are these, is it just totally randomly distributed in the population? Or are they centered on certain kinds of groups of people with different kinds of practices?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So there is a personality model called the Big Five personality model. And the acronym is OCEAN. So openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And probably unsurprisingly, people who are high in openness to experience are the ones who have these big dramatic experiences. Yeah, makes total sense. Probably no surprise there. You know, these people tend to have more intrusions of all kinds into their conscious awareness. Sometimes these can be creative epiphanies. These can be ideas. um, And so openness to experience is one Another trait that's, that's very predictive is absorption. And absorption is sort of that facet of openness to experience that I just mentioned, but dialed up to 11. So engagement with one's imagination, the capacity to have synesthesia, so switching, you know, hearing textures or seeing sounds and being deeply moved by sunsets or poetry, you know, to be completely absorbed in a movie and see yourself through the eyes of one of the characters. You know, some of these things, almost all of us have had these experiences and some of them, you know, require a kind of capacity for imaginative engagement that's, that's quite deep. And so this capacity for absorption does seem to predict these experiences as well in terms of practices, people who pray uh, or meditate are also more likely to have these experiences that is, they pray or meditate very often on a on a weekly basis.
2: I want to push on this a little bit, and so I want to start first by using your example of Freud, who uh, I say as a clinical psychologist who got my PhD in a program that was very psychoanalytic. So I drank the Kool-Aid at the source for four long years. Uh, and I, I don't think of myself as psychoanalytically oriented, but I'm pretty familiar with that body of work. And you're right, he talked about these experiences as a form of infantile regression, and he really trivialized them and pathologized them. So I've been th- you made me think about this classic collision between the world of Spock and the world of McCoy, to put it in a Star Trek framework. In other words, this classic collision between scientific materialist rationalists and practitioners of the uncanny. I'll just call it like that. (laughs) And I find it really... First, actually, I want to call out that a lot of people, mainly women, who've had uh, these kinds of experiences have been horribly mistreated, if not burned at the stake Mm. in the Mm -hmm. Middle Ages. Yeah, fair enough. there's a real larger context here for how people have had these kind of breakthroughs, you know, really pathologized in ways that were problematic. You know, people lobotomized in the 1930s in America who've had these kind of experiences and so forth. So with that as backdrop, one thing I find incredibly interesting in your work is you're harnessing the power of Spock to understand McCoy. In other words, you're harnessing the power of science and rationalism and scientific materialism, positivism, and the best of all that to to really try to make sense of of what's going on here. So in that context, then, I want to push on the notion that uh, these experiences may come or they don't, but we should be kind of careful of them. And if you think about the two elements that you deconstruct these experiences into, number one, uh, relaxation of the sense of self, even at the extreme, the loss of the sense of self. And second, greater openness to the world, more sense of connectedness to, with the world, including nature and other beings, if not all of reality. Both of those, I would say for many, many people are actually quite valuable to increase their sense of, in other words, increase the sense of Less self <laughs> and increase the sense of world, you know, and interconnectedness. That's kind of good. And you can think of a lot of pathology that at bottom is about too much of a sense of being an, an isolated, separated self and also too much of a sense of being separated from the world. So there's some value to me in cultivating these two features, uh, at least to some extent uh, less sense of self more sense of connection. And you can see how those certainly are valued in in many traditions as well, without uh, it needing to be the full package, the full package of the full self-transcendent experience. So in that context then, I wonder what you think, number one. And number two, if there are any practices you do yourself to relax your sense of egocentrism and taking life personally, and increase your sense of openness to and connection with larger reality.
1: Yeah, so I, I really like the idea of taking science and, and and a rationalistic framework and and pushing it as far as it can go. And to, you know, as I say, F the ineffable. <laughs> to to really try you know, I think measurement really matters, and I think we can measure more than we think. And I think in this case, we're managing to get a handle on something that I think most people intuitively don't think science is able to understand in any way. And to be fair, there are lots of parts of it, uh, like those kinds of metaphysical aspects, or religious or spiritual components that are outside the bracket. You know, we, we, we can't really look at those things uh, using our tools but there are a lot of things that we can. And so I, I really exist in that space that you mentioned of of riding the line between these two worlds and trying to understand all I can about these experiences. That's what gives me energy. And, and I derive a lot of my passion from from just that intersection. So I, I appreciate you seeing that and, and calling that out. I also think that it's absolutely true, before Freud, there was a lot of suppression of these experiences, spe- specifically in religious traditions. That's absolutely correct. And I think too disproportionately women bore the brunt of a lot of that. And so that would take us down a, a whole nother historical rabbit hole, but I think it's important to, to call that out as well. No, I think personally, for me, I studied Zen meditation. I'm a fairly poor practitioner. (laughs) I, I went on a number of retreats, and I count them as among the most important times in my life. And I am very much a proponent of meditation retreats. I think they're profoundly positive experiences. And I try to make some time in my day for meditation. And like most people, I wish I did more of it. But that is a time where that, that wall between the self and the world does fall away for me. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, these two components of self-transcendent experience, the, the self-loss aspect and the connectedness aspect. My wife and I would argue about these two components, and uh, she's a psychiatrist and Has a kind of literary flair, and so she she named the self loss component annihilational, and the connectedness component relational. So I think annihilational and relational are really poetic terms. And so I thought it was all about self loss. I thought it was really important to let go of the ego, and that that was going to be driving the important uh, well being results. You know, and it, it made sense to me that you wouldn't want to have this experience with an inflated ego or sense of oneself and that it could maybe drive up narcissism. And so I had a lot of ideas about how it was really all about ego loss. And uh, my wife said, no, 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 it's all about the relational component. It's, it's, it's connection that really ultimately matters. And you'll see um, my my new research deconstructs these two components. And it turns out my wife was absolutely correct. And it's really this relational component that these experiences, when they, when they make us feel connected to other people, that's when we really get the well-being benefit. And so I've been trying to bring that into my practice after the data corrected me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's... Yeah, it's great that you were able to modify <laughs> off of the data, right?
2: Spoken like a true scientist. I think it's uh, Maynard Keynes who had the line, uh, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right. That's really good.
1: Well, the, the Dalai Lama has a great line on this, too, about you know when when science uh, discovers new things, then Buddhism needs to change. And I, I find that incredible. Mean, Incredibly inspiring sentiment.
2: Yeah, I was thinking of you. Must know it. The quote from Dogen, um, the great Zen teacher of the 1200s in Japan: uh, "To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to perceive oneself as all things." Mm. And that last line—that's the—that's the—that's the aim, right? Yeah. As you said, to right. perceive yourself in that relational way as all things.
0: As we work our way toward a close here, uh, there's a question that we ask everybody who comes on the podcast. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to yourself as a young adult, as a child, as somebody even as recently as in college and high school, based on all the things you've learned, whether about this material or otherwise, what would you want to say to that person?
1: Oh, so you didn't say just one thing, so good. (laughs) You could have a little less. Sure, why not? the the first i would say is is being kind really matters more than you think i would say keep working hard even when it seems like nothing's going to work out and i would say you're not alone many other people experience the kinds of things that you are experiencing Whether those are negative things, whether they're positive, or whether they're big, dramatic, self-transcendent experiences.
0: David, it's been really great to have you here today. So thank you so much for doing this.
1: I don't know if I should be giving advice, but I'm happy to talk about my research. And it was (laughs) an incredible pleasure to talk with you both. And I do appreciate the advice that you two give. And I'll try to keep it in mind as I go forward. So thank you.
2: Oh, it's been great, David, and I strongly encourage people to check out your work. It's this fantastic combination of intellectual rigor and also um, courageous engagement with some topics that really, really matter and could be career suicide if not handled uh, with (laughs) the (laughs) the rigor with which you handle them. (laughs) And I really, really, really found myself thinking um, a few minutes ago, honestly, just seeing you in 10 years from now, 15, 20 years from now as a senior academic, and what a wonderful guy you already are and are going to be. So on behalf of those whom you will be helping and teaching and nurturing and mentoring, uh, including 10 years from now, if not more, I thank you.
0: So today we had the pleasure of speaking with David Yadin. We focused our conversation on self-transcendent experiences. Which, to simplify a bit, David described as having two key components. Openness to others and a sense of a loss of individual self. And then connectedness, often to all things altogether. To steal Rick's language a little bit, we often perceive the world as being distinctly separate from us. Where we're on one side of a kind of wall of perception and everything else lies on the other side of it. During a self-transcendent experience, which can be everything from moments of mindfulness meditation to a flow state while reading or studying, all the way up to a profound spiritual experience, that wall starts to come down or holes maybe appear in it that make the distance and separation between ourselves and others a little bit more permeable and a little bit closer. David talked for a little while about his own self transcendent experience and some of the consequences that that had inside of his life. And throughout the conversation, one of the questions that we had a bit of a back and forth around was whether or not self transcendent experiences are something that people should be seeking out. Are they good? Do they deliver lasting value? And are there potentially even some pitfalls that could be associated with an extreme loss of the sense of self? David shared some of the things that might be going on inside of the brain or the body when somebody is having one of these experiences. In particular, he pointed to some regions of the brain associated with spatial awareness that seem to act in a particularly unusual way when a meditator is having a really profound illness experience. But this is an emerging field of study, so he cautioned that any information here is more intriguing than it is revelatory. We also talked for a little while about the different kinds of people that have self transcendent experiences. They're surprisingly common, about one in three people has had one. And I asked whether there were key traits that people who have these experiences share, or if they're just randomly distributed inside of the population. Two of the things that David mentioned were a particularly high level of openness and absorption. If you're somebody who's likely to get lost in a good book, somebody who is synesthetic, or somebody who feels like the distance between themselves and others is maybe, you know, a bit closer than most people do, then you're more likely to have one of these experiences. He also talked about how secular and non-secular people interpret these experiences differently, and how that might have some consequences for the integration of these experiences throughout their lives. Rick emphasized how these experiences can be valuable, how they can lead to some positive impacts based off of lowering a bit too much sense of self or a little bit too much distance between self and other, and particularly how these experiences can be valuable if we actually choose to learn from them. As suggested by his HEAL model, which we've referenced many times on the podcast, have, enrich, absorb, and link, we can be having all of the positive experiences in the world, but if we're not actually learning from them, then we're not creating any lasting change in our mind or in our life. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating or a positive review. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.